Chapter Eleven of *The Girl from Hollywood* by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Gaza Delore was sitting at the piano when Crum arrived at the bungalow at fourteen twenty-one Vista del Paso at a little after six in the evening of the last Saturday in July. The smoke from a half-burnt cigarette lying on the ebony case was rising in a thin, indolent column above the masses of her black hair. Her fingers idled through a dreamy waltz. Crum gave her a surly nod as he closed the door behind him. He was tired and cross after a hard day at the studio. The girl, knowing that he would be all right presently, merely returned his nod and continued playing. He went immediately to his room, and a moment later she heard him enter the bathroom through another doorway. Half an hour later he emerged, shaved, spruce, and smiling. A tiny powder had effected the transformation, just as she had known it would. He came and leaned across the piano, close to her. She was very beautiful. It seemed to the man that she grew more beautiful and more desirable each day. The fact that she had been unattainable had fed the fires of his desire, transforming infatuation into as near a thing to love as a man of his type can ever feel. "'Well, little girl,' he cried gaily, "'I have good news for you.' She smiled a crooked little smile and shook her head. "'The only good news I can think of would be that the government has established a comfortable home for superannuated hopheads where they would be furnished without cost, with all the snow they could use.' The effects of her last shot were wearing off. He laughed good-naturedly. Really, he insisted, on the level. I've got the best news you've heard in moons. Well, she asked wearily. Old Battleaxe has got her divorce, he announced, referring less affectionately to his wife. Well, said the girl, that's good news. For her, if it's true. Crum frowned. It's good news for you, he said. It means that I can marry you now. The girl leaned back on the piano bench and laughed aloud. It was not a pleasant laugh. She laughed until the tears rolled down her cheeks. "'What is there funny about that?' growled the man. "'It would mean a lot to you. Respectability, for one, and success for another. The day you become Mrs. Wilson Crum, I'll star you in the greatest picture that was ever made.' "'Respectability,' she sneered. "'Your name would make me respectable, would it? It would be the insult added to all the injury you have done me. And as for starring—poof!' she snapped her fingers. I have but one ambition, thanks to you, you dirty hound, and that is snow. She leaned toward him, her two clenched fists almost shaking in his face. Give me all the snow I need, she cried, and the rest of them may have their fame and their laurels. He thought he saw his chance then. Turning away with a shrug, he walked to the fireplace and lighted the cigarette. Oh, very well, he said. If you feel that way about it, all right, but... He turned suddenly upon her. You'll have to get out of here and stay out. Do you understand? From this day on, you can only enter this house as Mrs. Wilson Crum, and you can rustle your own dope if you don't come back. Understand? She looked at him through narrowed lids. She reminded him of a tigress about to spring, and he backed away. Listen to me, she commanded in a slow, level tones. In the first place, you're lying to me about your wife getting her divorce. I'd have guessed as much if I hadn't known, for Hophead can't tell the truth. But I do know. You got a letter from your attorney today telling you that your wife still insists not only that she will never divorce you, but that she will never allow you a divorce. You mean to say that you opened up one of my letters, he demanded angrily? Sure I opened it. I open them all. I steam them open. What do you expect, she almost screamed, from the thing you have made of me? Do you expect honor and self-respect, or any other virtue, in a hype? You get out of here, he cried. You get out now, this minute. She rose from the bench and came and stood quite close to him. "'You'll see that I get all the snow I want if I go?' she asked. He laughed nastily. 
You don't ever get another bindle, he cried. Wait, she admonished. I wasn't through with what I was starting to say a minute ago. You've been hitting it long enough, Wilson, to know what one of our kind will do to get it. You know either you or I will sacrifice soul and body if there's no other way. We would lie, or steal, or murder. Do you get that, Wilson? Murder? There's just one thing that I won't do, but that one thing is not murder, Wilson. Listen. She lifted her face close to his and looked him straight in the eyes. If you ever try to take it away from me, or keep it from me, Wilson, I shall kill you. Her tone was cold and unemotional, and because of that, perhaps, the threat seemed very real. The man paled. Oh, come, he cried. What's the use of our scrapping? I was only kidding anyway. Run along and take a shot. It'll make you feel better. Yes, she said, I need one. But don't get it into your head that I was kidding. I wasn't. I'd just as like kill you as not. The only trouble is that killing's too damn good for you, Wilson. She walked toward the bathroom door. Oh, by the way, she said, pausing. Alan called up this afternoon. He's in town and will be up after dinner. He wants his money. She entered the bathroom and closed the door. Crumb lighted another cigarette and threw himself into an easy chair, where he sat scowling at a temple dog on a Chinese rug. The Japanese schoolboy opened the door and announced dinner, and a moment later Gaza joined Crumb in the little dining room. They both smoked throughout the meal, which they scarcely tasted. The girl was vivacious and apparently happy. She seemed to have forgotten the recent scene in the living room. She asked questions about the new picture. We're going to commence shooting Monday, he told her. Momentarily he waxed almost enthusiastic. I'm going to have trouble with that boob author, though, he said. If they kick him off the lot and give me a little more money, I'd make him the greatest picture ever screened. Then he relapsed into brooding silence. What's the matter, she asked. Worrying about Alan? Not exactly, he said. I'll stall him off again. He isn't going to be easy to stall this time, she observed, if I gather the correct idea from his line of talk over the phone today. I can't see what you've done with all the coin, Wilson. You got yours, didn't you? Sure, I got mine, she answered, and it's nothing to me what you'd do with Alan's share, but I'm here to tell you that you've pulled a boner if you've double-crossed him. I'm not much of a character reader, as proved by my erstwhile belief that you were a high-minded gentleman, but it strikes me the various boob could see that that man Alan is a bad actor. You better look out for him. I ain't afraid of him, blustered Crumb. No, of course you're not, she agreed sarcastically. You're a regular little lion-hearted Reginald Wilson. That's what you are. The doorbell rang. There he is now, said the girl. Crumb paled. What makes you think he's a bad man, he asked. Look at his face. Look at his eyes, she admonished. Hard? He's got a face like a brickbat. They rose from the table and entered the living room as the Japanese opened the front door. The caller was Slick Allen. Crumb rushed forward and greeted him effusively. Hello, old man, he cried. I'm mighty glad to see you. Mr. Lore told me you had phoned. Can't tell you how delighted I am. Alan nodded to the girl, tossed his cap upon a bench near the door, and crossed the center of the room. "'Won't you sit down, Mr. Allen?' she suggested. "'I ain't got much time,' he said, lowering himself into a chair. "'I came up here, Crumb, to get some money. His cold, fishy eyes looked straight into Crumb's. I come to get all the money there is coming to me. It's a trifle over ten thousand dollars, as I figure it.' "'Yes,' said Crumb. "'That's about it.' "'And I don't want no stalling this time, either,' concluded Allen. Stalling, exclaimed Crumb in a hurt tone. Who's been stalling? You have. Oh, my dear man, cried Crumb deprecatingly. You know that in matters of this kind one must be circumspect. There were reasons in the past why it would have been unsafe to transfer so large an amount to you. It might easily have been traced. 
I was being watched. A fellow even shadowed me to the teller's window of my bank one day. You see how it is? Neither of us can take chances. That's all right, too, said Alan, but I've been taking chances right along. And I ain't been taking them for my health. I've been taking them for the coin, and I want that coin. I want it pronto. You could most certainly have it, said Crumb. All right, replied Alan, extending a palm. Fork it over. My dear fellow, you don't think that I have it here, do you? demanded Crumb. You don't think I keep such an amount as that in my home, I hope. Where is it? In the bank, of course. Give me a check. You must be crazy. Suppose either of us was suspected. That check would link us up fine. It would be as bad for you as for me. Nothing doing. I'll get the cash when the bank opens on Monday. That's the very best I can do. If you'd written and let me know you were coming, I could have had it for you. Alan eyed him for a long minute. Very well, he said at last. I'll wait till noon Monday. Crumb breathed in an inward sigh of profound relief. If you're at the bank Monday morning at half past ten, you'll get the money, he said. How's the other stuff going? Sorry I couldn't handle that, but it's too bulky. The hooch? It's going fine, replied Alan. Got a young high blood at the edge of the valley handling it, a fellow by the name of Evans. He moves thirty-six cases a week. The kid's got a good head on him. Worked the whole scheme out himself. Sells the whole batch every week for cash to a guy with a big truck. They cover it with hay, and this guy hauls it right into the city in broad daylight, unloads it in the warehouse he's rented, slips each case into a carton labeled somebody or other soap, and delivers it a case at a time to a bunch of drugstores. The second guy used to be a drug salesman, and he's personally acquainted with every grafter in the business. As he talked, Alan had been studying the girl's face. She had noticed it before, but she was used to having men stare at her, and thought little of it. Finally, he addressed her. Do you know, Miss Delore, he said, there's something mighty familiar about your face. I noticed it the first time I came here, and I've been studying over it since. Seems like I know you somewhere else, or someone you look a lot like, but I can't quite get it straight in my head. I can't make out where it was, or when, or if it was you or someone else. I'll get it some day, though. I don't know, she replied. I'm sure I never saw you before you came here with Mr. Crumb the first time. Well, I don't know either, replied Alan, scratching his head. But it's mighty funny. He rose. I'll be going, he said. See you Monday at the bank. 10.30, sharp, Crumb. Sure, 10.30 sharp, replied Crumb, rising. Oh, say, Alan, will you do me a favor? I promised the fellow I'd bring him in a bindle of M tonight. And if you'll hand it to him, it'll save me a trip. It's right on your way to the car line. You'll find him in the alley back of the Hollywood drugstore, just the west of Cahanga on the south side of Hollywood Boulevard. Sure, glad to accommodate, said Alan. But how'll I know him? He'll be standing there, and you walk up and ask him the time. If he tells you, and then asks if you can change a five, you'll know he's the guy all right. Then you hand him these two ones and a fifty-cent piece, and he hands you a five-dollar bill. That's all there is to it. Inside the two ones, I'll wrap a bindle of them. You can give me the five Monday morning when I see you. Slip me the junk, said Alan. The girl had risen and was putting on her coat and hat. Where are you going? Home so early? asked Crumb. Yes, she replied. I'm tired, and I want to write a letter. I thought you lived here, said Alan. I'm here nearly all day, but I go home nights, replied the girl. Slick Alan looked puzzled as he left the bungalow. Going my way, he asked of the girl as they reached the sidewalk. No, she replied. I go in the opposite direction. Good night. Good night, said Alan, and turned toward Hollywood Boulevard. Inside the bungalow, Crumb was signaling Central for a connection. Give me the police station on Kahanga, near Hollywood, he said. I haven't time to look up the number. Quick, it's important. There was a moment's silence, and then, Hello, what is this? 
Listen, if you want to get a hophead with the goods on him right in the act of peddling, send a dick to the back of the Hollywood drugstore and have him wait until a guy comes up and asks him what time it is. Then have a dick tell him and say, can you change a five? That's the cue for the guy to slip him a bindle of morphine rolled up in a couple of one-dollar bills. If you don't send a dummy, he'll know what to do next, and you'd better get him in a hurry. What? No. Oh, just a friend. Just a friend. Wilson Crumb hung up the receiver. There was a grin on his face, and he turned away from the instrument. It's too bad, Alan, but I'm afraid you won't be at the bank at half-past ten on Monday morning, he said. End of chapter 11